to John chapter number 10, we are continuing a uh, kind of what I would call a mini-series on uh, John 10. This is looking at Jesus' view of the Scriptures. And we did this two weeks ago. Uh, we'll do it today, and then we'll do it next week. And then we'll be done with this little mini-series, and we'll keep on moving. But the goal of this is to answer the question, how did Jesus view the Scriptures? That's our goal. What was the attitude of Jesus toward the Bible itself? I'm not really looking at, you know, how did Jesus interpret the Scriptures or how did Jesus fulfill the Scriptures or what Scriptures did Jesus use to teach from. The goal is what did Jesus believe about the Scriptures? And I think that's an important question. As followers of Jesus, we should know what his attitude was, what his beliefs were, what he thought, and in turn we should reflect those. So to understand this, we're looking at John 10. Uh, John 10 is a massively important text. Uh, This is important for two reasons. Number one, this is the last public discourse that John records for us. So if you work through the book of John, we've gone through chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and now 10, that Jesus is talking publicly at at many occasions. He's doing miracles publicly. He's addressing crowds. He's talking to religious leaders. This is the last of those that John will record. After chapter 10, John is going to go Jesus' private ministry with his disciples disciples or just with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's going to go kind of private and individualized. So this is public. Last one. This is also Jesus effectively in front of a firing squad. Jesus has just claimed equality with the Father. He's just told them that he in fact is God in the flesh and they take up stones. They're about to execute him and this, these are his words. So this is an important text. We read it a couple weeks ago, but we're going to read it again. Look in verse number 30 of John 10. Jesus ends kind of this brief little uh, statement where he says, I and my Father are one. Hey, me and the Father, we're one, we're together, there's, there's synergy, there's equality. It says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So Jesus answered them, and he has a question for them. You know, they're about to kill him. And he says, many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Look, why are you going to kill me? What, because I I healed a guy that was lame, because I healed a guy that was blind, because I fed, you know, people that were hungry. Why are you going to kill me? Their answer to him is verse number 33. They answered saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Look, we're not killing you for what you're doing, we're killing you for what you're saying. You said that you were God. You're, you're a man making yourself equal with God. What Jesus is trying to get them to see, no, I'm God who made myself a man. That's actually, you know, reality, but they're about to kill him. So Jesus answered, verse 34, is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods? He quotes Psalm 82 there. We, you can go back and listen to what that means from two weeks ago. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken... Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. So he goes back to this, this quote, this little phrase that Asaph wrote in Psalm 82 that most people don't even know about. And, and he quotes that and he uses it as leverage to say, look, if, if that happened there, then, then can't I call myself God? You mad at me for saying I'm the Son of God? I'm the one that the Father has sent. I'm on a divine mission. I'm the one who is sanctified. He set me apart. That's who I am. And you're mad at me for this? He says in verse 36, or 37, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. Look, if my walk doesn't back up my talk, don't believe me. Push me to the side. But, 38, if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I am him. Look, you should should know by what, not just what I'm saying, but what I'm doing. 
You should believe on me because of that. Verse 39, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. So it didn't really make matters better. They didn't really believe Jesus here. But it's an important text because we can answer the question, what was Jesus' attitude towards the Scriptures? And it's really summed up for us in this brief little phrase in verse number 35. He says, the Word of God came, so he calls the Scriptures the Word of God. But then he says, the Scripture cannot be broken. This is really his thesis. This is what he's building off of. This is why he can make his case in this really important moment. He can make his case off of this little, you know, phrase from Psalm 82 is because the Scriptures cannot be broken. So we're trying to answer the question, what does it mean that the Scriptures are unbreakable? What does it mean that we have an unbreakable word? And we've said, first of all, it means that the Scriptures cannot be disproven. Secondly, it means they should not be disobeyed. And thirdly, that the Scripture must not be disregarded. So we've already covered that it cannot be disproven. And a broken word is a false word. If you break your promise, you said something that didn't correspond to reality. You said you would do this, but you didn't deliver on it. It's false. So what it means is that the Scriptures can't be disproven. All of it's true, utterly true. But it also means that what we're going to look at today is that it should not be disobeyed. And our goal is to answer these questions today. If we can answer these three questions, we'll, we'll understand it all. What did Jesus say about this? Why should it be appealing? And how can we make it practical? That's the goal. What did he say? So, you know, what, so what, now what? That's really what we're doing, okay? What did he say? So what? Why should that be appealing to me? Now what? How do I make this practical? So let's start. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that there's this unbreakable word, this word of God. But he says in verse number 34, is it not written in your, and then he uses this word, it's an important word, but small, law. Isn't it written in your law? I said ye are gods, and he quotes Psalm. So if you've been around church any length of time, you'd probably know enough about kind of the the big picture of the Bible to know that the law is generally considered to be the first five books of the Bible. That is known as the book of the law or the Pentateuch. It's what Moses wrote. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books are known as the law. It's where you find the Ten Commandments. It's where you find do this and not that. It's where you find the, uh, the ceremonial code. It's where you find the uh, the, the sanitary code, it's where you find the moral code. All these things are there in the law. After the law, you have history books like Judges and Joshua and Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. And then eventually you get into some poetry like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, these poetic books. So why is Jesus taking a genre that would generally be classified as poetry? He's taking the Psalms and he calls the Psalms the law. Why would you call the psalm the law? That's kind of an unusual thing to do, honestly. And I think it's Jesus' way of understanding and telling us that no matter what you read in the Scripture, no matter where you're at or what genre of literature it is, no matter what you read, it's something you have to obey. All of the Scripture, not just the book of the law, the first five books that give you the do's and don'ts, but even the history, even the poetry, all of it is meant to be authoritative. All of it is an unbreakable word. All of it is something that should command your attention. All of it's designed to be a functional authority outside of you. Something that actually works, something that actually does something for you, but it's outside of you. It's it's altogether different from your own thoughts and your own head. Now, Let me pause for a moment. I know and I understand that in our society, and and perhaps many in this room would share in this, you would find this idea to be slightly repulsive. 
We live in a society that's very individualistic. We live in a society that's terribly anti-authority. If you use words like submission and service and discipline and responsibility, those are practically dirty words nowadays in our society. If you use words like choice and freedom and fulfillment and personal potential, those are wonderful words that people love. And many have tried to accommodate the culture by shying away from this idea that Jesus is speaking into here, that we have an unbreakable word, that we have a word that you can refer to as law, and it's a believer's responsibility to sit under the authority of Scripture. And when you shy away from that, it's not only contrary to what Jesus says, but it's unwise. It actually will lead you to something that is not healthy but detrimental And this truth, properly understood, really shouldn't be repulsive. It should be beautiful. It should be appealing. It should be something that engenders love in our hearts. And I want to try to first just help you with that. Why should this be appealing? The fact that Jesus is saying, here is the Scriptures. Here's a word from God. Here is something that is absolutely true that should be law, that should govern you, that should be authoritative. Why should that be appealing and not something that we run from and that we hide from? I could give you a lot of reasons, but I only give you three. First one is it proves your maturity. It, just, it proves your maturity. There are a lot of people that will think of Christianity as quaint and frankly immature. Sigmund Freud wrote about religion, and he said that it was a childhood neurosis. Freud said religious people are childish. Now, why would Freud write that? Because in his mind, children need black and white answers. Children need security. Children constantly need a parent or an authority to tell them, do this, don't do that, stop that, start this. They constantly need an authority in their lives. So, you will have people at times tell you, if, if you're trying to share your faith, you know what? Some people need a religion like that, but I don't. Then what does that mean? What that means is, you know what? Some people need, you know, a teacher like they're a little kid. Some people need black and white. Some people need that security. But, you know, I grew up. I make my own decisions. I think for myself. I stand on my own two feet. Perhaps you've had someone tell you this. I've had people tell me this before. I wish I could believe like you. It sounds, it sounds very flattering. It's actually not. It sounds very flattering to say, I wish I could believe like you. What are they saying? You know, it sounds nice, but I can't be childish like you. I grew up. I went to college. I learned some stuff. I've, I, I know enough science that, you know, I've moved on to understanding. All of it reflects the idea that, you know what, I, I can't live life and, and, and live out of this rigid, the Bible tells me so, that's my authority, you know, it has what I need for life. You know, think for yourself a little bit. Grow up a little bit. Mature a little bit. Now, the problem with this is that the real heart of childishness it's not really needing an authority. The real heart of, of being a child and being immature is I want my way and I want it now. Isn't it? If you have young children like I do, you, you know that to be the case. That the heart of a child is I want my graham cracker. Give me my graham cracker. If I don't get my graham cracker, I'm going to cry. I'm going to beat somebody up. I'm going I'm to do whatever it takes because I need my graham cracker because my brain told me that's important. The world revolves around this. Give me my graham cracker, Right? That's the real heart of childishness. Whatever I think, whatever I feel, that is absolutely true. And I'm just going to pursue that. And, and that is what governs everything in my life. 
And if you want to be your own boss and you want to be your own authority and you want to just think for yourself all the time, what that, what that means is essentially it's kind of childish. There has to be a time where a child grows out of that and understands that, you know what, life doesn't revolve around me. A child has to grow out of their selfishness and understand that, you know what, there are other people besides me. There are, other, there are other ways of thinking about something than just the way I think about it. There are other feelings. My feelings aren't the end-all, be-all on this matter. You eventually have to grow out of that. Many of you know people that never grew out of that. They're 30, they're 40, they're 50, and they never grew out of that version of childishness, of, of the world always being around them, and they're the center of gravity. And, and you know those people. What are their lives like? They're a mess. They're a mess. How many of you have been following the Antonio Brown saga as, uh, as he goes from team to team? A few of you have been following that. I'm a sports fan. I, I like basketball and football especially. If you don't like sports and you're like, who's Antonio Brown? I'll catch you up to speed. He was the number one wide receiver for the Steelers. There was a lot of tension. The Steelers traded him. Good job. Uh, to the Raiders, that didn't last but about two days. And, uh, and Antonio Brown was uh, cut from the Raiders, picked up by Satan's team. Uh, I mean, the Patriots. And... <laughs> That lasted about one game, um, and they cut him, and, you know, they, they, they couldn't handle the drama. I, just kidding, Matt. Matt's, Matt leads singing, and he's a Patriots fan. We're, we're just, we're poking fun. Yeah, pray for him. That's right. I read this article from, uh, from A.B.'s dad, Larry Moss, or his stepdad, I guess I should say. He helped raise him from when he was 5 to 17. Apparently their relationship isn't solid based on the article. And I don't really know what all that's like, but this is just what he said. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but this is what he said. He said, Antonio just feels like he can have whatever he wants. He's just empowered that way. He's been that way since he's been 12 years old. Now, what is he saying? He never grew up. He never grew up. He still thinks it's all about me. He still thinks that, it, that the world revolves around him. Now, Jesus says, there's a functional authority, something that's authoritative outside of you. You're not the center of the universe. God is. The world doesn't revolve around your happiness. It revolves around the glory of God. Does that sound childish? I would argue that's the extreme opposite of childishness. That's maturity. I dare say that a Christian who signs himself up for that and says, yeah, I believe that, is far from immature. That's, that's not an easy life. You're not signing yourself up for something that is just, you know, uh, roses and peaches all the time. Freud couldn't have been more wrong. A true sign that you're growing up and you're maturing is to realize that, you know what? My heart and my feelings aren't all that matters in the world. And there's something else that, that really is above those. My feelings are very subjective. I need something objective to guide and to help me. And it's not all about what I think or what I feel and what I want. There's something else beside that. So you having this, what Jesus is recommending, a law, an unbreakable word, is really, it proves maturity. But it also does this, it provides you with joy. Mark Twain, the famous author, that, that was his pen name, Samuel Clemenson was his real name, used to have nightmares. And his nightmares were of a giant family-sized Bible opened up and placed on his chest from which he could not get escape, escape and, it, and it slowly crushed him. Couldn't breathe, couldn't breathe, couldn't breathe, just laying on his chest. What's that about? Twain was saying, you know what? This book is so heavy. I feel like I'm, I'm being crushed under the weight of it. 
I feel as though this, this is a cosmic killjoy. It is just weighing me down. It is, it is so heavy. Get it off of me. I'm going to die under the weight of this. Now, was Twain right? Contrast that to King David. King David wrote a lot about the Bible, and he said this in Psalm 119. He said, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. You know what it's like to be in love at that onset of the relationship where they are your meditation all the day? You know what I'm talking about? Where you, you've just begun to materialize that relationship and all of a sudden they are on your mind all the time. You go to work, you take a shower, you're, you're mowing the lawn. It doesn't matter. They're just on your mind. Husbands, here's the opportunity. Still that way, babe, you know? Lean over, tell her, you're on my mind all day. Here's what David says. I have a love relationship with the word of God. I love thy law. It's my meditation all the day. He would say several verses later in in verse 103, he said, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. That's a really interesting way to talk about the Bible. That's the, that's the ancient equivalent of, mm, this is finger licking good. That's what Jesus, or David is saying about the Bible. Who's right? Twain, it crushes me. It's so heavy. David, I love this. It's finger licking good. Who's right? Only one. <laughs> They're not both right. Well, I dare say that David found to be true what Jesus said in John 8. That if you continue in my word, that means do what I say. Do what I say, follow my commands, then you'll be my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What does Jesus say? This leads you to freedom. This leads you to a wide path. This leads you to liberty. This leads you to full range of motion. This, this, is, this is good for you. This is joy producing. This gives you something good. We, we talked about this weeks ago. That real freedom isn't just doing what I want. Real freedom is doing what I'm meant to do, what I'm designed to do. And God knows how you're designed. God knows how you're made. He knows how relationships should work. He knows how life should work. He knows that. And when he tells you to do this or to stay away from this or to go this way, that's not meant to box you in. That's not meant to frustrate you. That's not arbitrary. He's not trying just to, just to restrict you and make you miserable all the time. He's trying to lead you to life and joy and happiness and a wide path and liberty. And if you'll live that out and you'll say unbreakable word, your law, authority in my life, you'll find that to be true. You'll find what David found to be true, that this is finger licking good. It's awesome. I love this. I don't resent this. I want this. I embrace this. Say, Pastor, that that doesn't make sense to me. I know it's paradoxical, but a lot of life is. You want to give, then you'll get, right? The the more you give to people, the more you get. It may not necessarily be money, but the joy, the happiness that comes from that, there's no replacement for that. You you want to find true freedom? You got to send out authority. You got you to say, you know what? This is an unbreakable word. This is God's word. This is law. That was Jesus's attitude. And if you can do that and find that you submit to the authority of God's word, then you'll, you'll find joy. You'll find clarity of thinking. You'll find liberty. You'll find something good. Thirdly, and most importantly, I would say, this pushes you into a relationship. What's it do? It proves that you're mature. It provides you with some joy, but it pushes you into a relationship. And honestly, I think this is the key to, to unlocking, is this a weight on my chest that crushes me or is this delicious? You want to know how to go from weight to delicious. You have to understand this, that the word is meant to push you into relationship. You can't forget 
that the Bible is given to you from God out of the context of relationship. That this ultimately is God's self-disclosure to us. That this is ultimately Him coming to us and saying, here's who I am and here's what I think and here's what I feel and here's my nature and here's my character and let me tell you about myself. That this is not an end in and of itself. That the Bible is actually meant to lead you and to push you into right relationship with God. It's supposed to push you into some intimacy with God through Jesus. That's what it's designed to do. That if, if you begin to understand this rightly, then you'll begin to understand your relationship with God. And you'll begin to have a fuller relationship with God. If you don't, and it's just a rule book, then you'll beat yourself up or you'll beat other people up, one or the other. You'll never really get it. Jesus said in John 5 that you should search the Scriptures. And why does he tell them to do that? He says, because they are they which testify of me. Go to the Scriptures Get to know them and you'll get to know me. You'll find me. And finding Jesus is the ultimate goal and the ultimate prize and the ultimate pursuit. That's, that's really what you're after. And if you fail to understand this, honestly, I went through a ton of church before I understood this. Before I figured out that this was designed to push me into relationship and this was God's self-disclosure. And I thought it was just a, a guide and a manual and, and you know, do and don't and it'll, it'll lead you in right as a code of morality. And, and it is those things, but it's more than that. It's more than that. I'll, I'll see if I can illustrate. Let's say you wanted to get to know me better. You thought, that Mark guy, you know, I want to get to know him better. He, you know, whatever. He has lots of kids or something, and, and he seems interesting. <laughs> you have to determine how you want to get to know me. There's lots of ways you get to know me. You could take maybe the most empirical way, the most scientific way, and break me down to my biochemical parts. That would kind of be an indisputable way to get to know me. And if you did that, you'd find that I'm, you know, carbon and, and hydrogen and oxygen, mostly. Little, little phosphorus, a little bit of nitrogen in there. You took all those chemicals and added them up. You could sell them on the black market for like $2 or something. Now, is that me? It's, it's not untrue that that's who I am, but it's not really who I am. It doesn't really get at the heart of who I am as a person. You say, okay, that's silly. We would never do that. Let's take a different approach. Let's go biological, right? Let, let, let's see how you work physiologically. And I, I want to know if your respiratory system is in good shape and, and how your lungs are doing. And we should check out your, your GI tract. And I should know you biologically. I won't dissect you and cut you open. But, you know, I, I'll look at your medical record. I'll go to the doctors and get your medical record. And I'll find out, are you on, you know, prescription medication or not? If so, which ones are you taking? How many surgeries have you had? What was the reason for those surgeries? That would be some fairly personal information. If you, if you examined all that and looked at it, you would get to know me in one sense, but you still wouldn't really know me. It's still not getting to the heart of, of who I am as a person. You say, okay, I got it then. Best approach. I'll just interview everyone who's like ever known you. I'll, I'll go to the, the hospital where you were born Cosair Children's in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'll, I'll look at that room and I'll talk to the doctor who delivered you, if they're still alive, I don't know, uh, and I'll, I'll go to your, your childhood home, talk to your neighbors that grew up next to you, and then I'll talk to your parents and to your siblings and to your wife. I'll just interview everybody and find out a bunch of information about you from them, and then I'll really get to know you. I'd say you're getting closer, but you're still not really going to get to know me. If you want to get to know me, you know what the best way is? Talk. Sit down. Have a conversation, have a meal, make me a filet mignon if you want. 
Watch the Steelers beat the Patriots, you know, have, have some fun. But to sit down. What are you worked up about? What are you anxious about? What are your dreams in the next 10, 15 years? What's your philosophy of parenting? What kind of dad do you want to be? Then you'll get to know me, right? How? Through relationship. Is that super empirical? No. It's not real scientific. It's, it's something that you can't really prove or disprove. That's how you get to know me, through relationship. And when you take this book, and it is a book of facts. There's history in here. There's, there's, there's scientific stuff in here. You can look at it and you can fact check it if you want. But if that's all you're doing, you're really missing the point of it. You can take this and use it as a guide for your life and as a rule book and say, you know what? God says don't do that and God says do do this. And you know what? This will just be the owner's manual and this, this will be you know, basic instruction before leaving earth. This, this will be the Bible and this will just be what governs my life. It, it, are there some laws? Are there do's and don'ts in here? Yes, there are. But if that's all that it is, you're falling short. You're missing the point. The point is actually to show you who God is. It's a self-disclosure. The point is actually to push you into relationship with him as you read about this. The point is not to read Jonah and to say, Jonah, you know, ran from God, bad boy, slap on the hand, you know, fish swallows you. Run from God, beware, watch out, he'll get you. The point of Jonah is to look at Jonah and say, you know what? God had a heart for these people that didn't know him. So he takes one of his servants and says, go on mission. Go tell them about me. Look at the grace and the mercy that I have for them. Servant runs away. So God graciously grabs him and says, no, get back on task. This is what I want for the world. That shows you God's heart. And when you begin to understand God's heart, then all of a sudden the relationship begins to blossom from that. This is why I never read a biography and started like, you know, talking to the person. I, I never read a biography on George Patton and said, you know what? I'll start praying to George Patton and I'll have a relationship with him. No, it's done. It's just information about him. This is not just information about God. This is not just information about Jesus. This is supposed to, when you're done, this is why saints all through the ages have gone to the scriptures, seen the heart of God, and it has pushed them to talk to him more and to pray to him more and to praise him and something enlarges in the heart and relationship forms with God. You say, that's not very scientific. I know, but that's how relationships are. It's how they work. And if you don't get that, if you don't get that effectively this is God's love letter to you, then it probably will feel like a, a weight on your chest. It probably will crush you. But when you get that this is a self-disclosure, that he loves you, I have a little habit that I picked up years ago when I began to fully understand this, that in my Bibles, I go to Genesis 1.1, and right before that, I write, Dear Mark, comma. Then I go to the end of Revelation, I write, Love God, as a way to, to indicate to me, this is God's letter to me. He wants relationship with me through this. Now, that should be appealing. It should be. If you know Jesus as your Savior, that should be appealing. Amen. To say, you know what? In this unbreakable word, this, yeah, okay, it's authority outside of me, but that actually is a sign of maturity. That actually is something that it's going to provide me with joy. This is something that's actually going to push me deeper into relationship. I should want this, and you should. Say, so, okay, how do I make that practical then? This has been very uh, uh, theoretical, a bit more philosophical than normal. So, so how do I make this practical? What can I do to actually live this out and not just have a concept what are the implications of this? There's a boatload of implications, but I would say the first two that you have to start with is you should submit to this and you should prioritize this. Or better said, give in and pencil in. If I could leave you with one thing this morning, that's what I want to leave you with. 
that you would walk out of here saying, you know, when it comes to this, Jesus thought that this was unbreakable. The word of God, law should govern me. And I am going to give into this and I'm going to pencil this in. That's going to be my approach. Some of you have been around church a long time. You've heard a boatload of sermons. But frankly, you just need to wave the white flag. And I don't, I don't, I don't got any tricks. I don't got a dog and pony show for you. You just need to give in. You just need to decide, you know what? I'm done fighting this. I'm done with this 20% of my life that is relegated off to the side that I will not give God access to and I will not allow him to control and I will not let him put his authority in my life. I'm done fighting that. I am going to, I'm going to pursue what David said. I want, I want to think this is delicious. I want to think this is honey. I want to think this is finger looking good. I want to love this. I'm going, I'm going to pursue what's going to lead me to joy. I'm going to give in. And although that feels scary, I'll admit it feels scary. It does. It can feel like suicide of your will. Although it feels scary, it's the best thing you could possibly do. I read weeks ago about this man who went canoeing up in, uh, up in New England, kind of uh, early spring. Water was real cold, but went canoeing and went over this kind of short, not super big, but kind of short waterfall thing. And he ended up getting caught in this backwash. It was just churning and churning and he could not get out of and was actually outside of the canoe. The water was very cold and he knew like, I have a very limited amount of time before this is too cold and hypothermia and I'm, I'm done for. I mean, he fought and fought and fought and fought in the backwash. But about five minutes in, he, he actually gave in to hypothermia and the man ended up dying. And But what was amazing was that once he stopped struggling, that backwash pulled him under and pushed him out about 10 yards and it was done. That if he would have just stopped the struggle, that he actually would have got what he really wanted in the first place. And many times we approach the Bible and we fight and we wrestle and we struggle and we struggle and we struggle. And the best thing you can do, although it's scary, is to say, you know what? Pull me under, I give in, I submit. Start there, give in, but then pencil it in. It's a matter of priority. You, you've got to get to the point where you say, you know what? This is going to be a priority on my schedule day to day for me. Say, pastor, I know, but it's just, it's, it, I'm so busy. It's just tough. Can I pastor you for a little bit today? I don't buy it. Okay? I don't buy it. You found enough time to track the AB drama. You found enough time to watch the Steelers last week, as disappointing as that was. You found enough time to get to the kids' soccer game. You found enough time to watch a couple hours of TV this last week. You found enough time to get your hustle on and, and get your side business going and your, and your multi-level marketing thing going and, and enlist some, some new teammates. If you're too busy for this, then you were probably too busy for social media last week then too, huh? Probably spent no time on Facebook, no time on Instagram, no time checking out what, what the kids or the grandkids or the neighbors or the people you don't care about are doing. I'm sure you were too busy for hunting season then, huh? You didn't get your bow dialed in. You got no tree stand up in the tree. You got no gear ready because you were too busy, right? Right? Let's be real. We're not too busy. We are busy. I understand that, but we're not too busy to prioritize it. It's a matter of, you know what? It's just not high on the priority list. 
I'd rather do something else. I'd rather, I'd rather have my me time. I'd rather do this. Our excuses are lame. They're lame. The reality is if, if Jesus is accurate, when he says that this is a, a, an absolute book full of undiluted truth, unbreakable words, should be law, should govern our lives, then we should spend some time with it. You got to pencil it in. Well, pastor, you know, it's not that I'm too busy. It's just, uh, it's tough to comprehend. It's just, um, you know, I never, reading was never for me. I'm just not that smart. You know, I'll let Moses answer that one. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Moses gives uh, the, the law a second time. It's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. The law came, and then to make sure they really got it, Moses gives it to them again. And he gets to the end of giving them the law again. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 30. He says, This commandment which I commanded thee this day, it's not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up to heaven for us and bring it down that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth, in thy heart, that thou mayest doest it. What's he say? This isn't impossible. You can understand this. You can obey this. He said, it's not hidden far off in the sky. Like you got to go on some rescue mission far away, go get it, figure it out. It's not buried in the depths of the sea. You don't need Dora to go explore and to, and to figure this out and to find this and bring it back to you. This, this isn't the mystery of the universe. It can be on your lips, in your heart, taught to your children, near, not far, right in front of you, ready to be understood, ready to be obeyed. I understand it's reading. I understand you have to apply your brain a little bit, but I, there's no doubt in my mind that every single one of you in this, in this room, if not 99.9% of you, ha, ha, can do that. It's, it's, not, it's not too difficult. It's, it's not that we're too busy. It's simply a matter of, you know, I don't feel like it. You know what? It, it's just, it's not a priority for me. And I hope that changes, honestly. I hope it changes. You say, okay, pastor, how can I do that practically? Well, I will get bottom shelf there's a number of things you could do i love the day and age that we live in there's so much technology the word is so accessible it's so accessible there's so many things you can do i would start by making church a priority i understand you're here okay go bark to the other people that are here pastor i understand you're here but you got to start there it's, is church optional? Is it, eh, maybe, you know, is it a debate on if you go or not? The kids are filling up to it or not, or is it a priority? Sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word. Make that a priority. Do you read this on your own for yourself? Can you add five minutes to what you did last week? You said, I didn't do anything last week. All right, then do five minutes. So I did 10 minutes a day. Then do 15. Can you add five minutes? Is your, is your schedule that busy to where you can't add, you know, another five minutes? Can you download an app on your phone? version is the one that I use. Can you download that? And ha- literally, it will read the Bible to you. Like while you're getting ready in the morning, while you're mowing the lawn, while you're driving the car. There, there's channels and podcasts. Can you re-listen to a sermon? You can go on our website and you can stream stuff as you drive, as you work, as you go along. Can you take one verse and memorize it? My five-year-old does every week in Awana. He puts a verse in his head and he memorizes it. Can you meditate on it? Stick a phrase, stick a verse in your head and roll it over and roll it over and roll it over and chew on it and chew on it and chew on it. There's a million ways. You can't probably do all of that this week. You can journal this. There's so many things you can do. But do something. 
So you know what? Here's where I'm at. And one step further would be to do that. You're probably not going to be able to take 10 steps this week. That'll get old if you try to do too much too fast. But can you take a step? Can you pencil this in? I hope that you can. Here's the bottom line. What was Jesus' attitude towards the scriptures? Well, his attitude was this is unbreakable. Meaning, at least, that it, it can't be disproven. That it's absolutely true. And meaning at least that it's law, as he said, and that it, it should be obeyed, should not be disobeyed. Do you reflect that? That's the, that is the question of the day. If Jesus thought this and you are his follower, does your heart reflect that? Is the book as central to your life and to your heart and to your outlook as it was to his? Because if you have Jesus as an example, you should. Pray with me.